This is not going to be a funny class. I try to make my class. I, I gave that up actually about a year ago. I thought, you know, this is great. I can stand up and show everybody how funny I am. And I, my classes are never funny, and I know that. But, <laughs> but I did get this. Actually, I got this several years ago, so long ago. I don't remember getting it, but I was looking through my computer on Thursday doing some spotlighting to look for some, some material that I knew I did have for this class. And I came up across one. It's probably I'm probably the only one who's going to think this is funny because it's called A Therapist Suggestion for Christmas Carols. So schizophrenia. Do you hear what I hear? <laughs> I'm glad you all laughed. Oh, good. Sir. See, I set it up enough for you to no, no, cue the laughter. Multiple personality disorder. We three kings disoriented are. So. Um, dementia. I think I'll be home for Christmas. Um, narcissistic. Hark the herald angels sing about me. <laughs> um, manic. Deck the halls and walls and house and lawn and streets and stores and office and town and cars and buses and trucks and trees and um, paranoid. Santa Claus is coming to town to get me. <laughs> Attention deficit disorder. <clears throat> Silent night. Holy. Ooh, look at the froggy. Can I have a chocolate? Why is France so far away? And then last one. Obsessive compulsive disorder. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle bells. Let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, come to us, we pray. Um, allow your love to come down to us now um, as we anticipate Christmas, your incarnation, your coming to dwell among us, full of grace and truth. Speak to us now um, and stop our ears. Uh, allow us, Lord, by your grace to see you. Give us the eyes to recognize you and your Son, veiled in majesty. Uh, come. Uh, we do pray especially for Paula, for, for, uh, for Craig, that you be with their family. Um, comfort and heal. Um, come. To them this Christmas, I would pray in a real way. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. So, what what is today? Um, the class I've done the last few years. I mean, it's really just an excuse for me to to think about Christmas, which I love doing. Um, I've, I've said several times, and I think it's true. I think it's true. Um, having children 12 years ago made me really like Christmas. You know, I mean, it wasn't a humbug before that, but but uh, sort of gave myself over rather than sort of pushing away, you know, the commercialism and all that. Well, even to an extent, you know, it's kind of, I can almost go away along with it. Not the commercialism per se, but, you know, just the, the weeks leading up to it and kind of grab on and, and ride the tail for my own ends. You know, sort of usurp Christmas, as it were, my own sort of personal Christmas, my own sort of uh, uh, fascination with uh, the Incarnation with the actual truth and the reality that God uh, lowered himself and did not consider equality with God and equality with himself as something to be clutched and held onto, grasped like, um, you know, uh, 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 just grasped, but to empty himself and make himself known. Uh, and not for any sort of purpose, not to come and to be an example, not to come and and, uh, and just for kicks to kind of come check things out like Morgan Freeman, um, kind of as, as, as Matt's uh, references were today, not just to kind of come down and George Burns, hey, what's going on? Let me sort of check in with my creation, uh, see how things are going, but to come and die, you know, and so Christmas always has Easter, always has Good Friday. So the soundings that are today there's always a sadness to Christmas, and I think maybe that's one reason, too, becoming a parent. Uh, as somebody said, you know, when you become a parent, what do you do? You take your heart out, and you hold it in front of you, 
and you give it to, to at least from my life, two, two little people, <laughs> and you say, please handle this with care, you know, because now a part of me is always outside of me, one that's very, uh, very vulnerable. And of course, that's Christmas. It evokes that vulnerability. It evokes that, because um, they're, they're Jesus is, they're God is, you know, laying in a mean estate, vulnerable, open, uh, as if it were, you know, handle me with care, which of course we didn't do. And of course, so there it is, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, it's all there. And so that's what I like to do these, this last Sunday before Christmas. It's just the chance for me to collect all of that, as it were, in some readings. Um, and so that was the, uh, the intent of the title, at least, Great Christmas One-Liners, to kind of pull together a lot of different areas. And it's a little, still a, 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 certainly a, a wide variety of sources, some hymns, some of the scriptures, a couple of stories, Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory, going to read part of that, some other things. But uh, it's more than one-liners. It's a little bit different than what I thought it would be. It's like 100-liners. Um, but, uh, but that's the intent. So, uh, so come along, interrupt, as I always say, um, ask questions, do whatever, but kind of soundings into Christmas and what it means. Um, and so we start, as I have the last couple of weeks, somewhat unintendedly, but, but do it again, with uh, one of the, uh, Thomas Cramner, um, wrote two collects for Christmas, uh, and the first of the two reads this. Um, o God, who makest us glad with the yearly remembrance of the birth of thine only Son, Jesus Christ, grant that as we joyfully receive him for our Redeemer, so we may with sure confidence behold him when he shall come to be our judge, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. And so here... We see again um, Cramner in such an economy of word, an economy of phrase, holding some of that tension, the coming, the second coming, coming as our redeemer, not as our example, not as just, say, to check in, not because he's bored, not because in a certain sense he has to, but because he needs to. In order to redeem his people, um, he comes. He comes to, to, to be born in order to die. Um, and so that blood is always there. Um, did we come from a birth? A birth, certainly, yes. Um, there was clear evidence of that, uh, but was it? Uh, but there was also death. But whose death? You know, that's sort of a paraphrase of. Uh, I didn't intend to do all that. Um, who is that? Michael. It's the guy from Ohio who sounds like he's from England. T. S. Eliot's uh, the, the Journey of the Magi. Thank you. Thank you for letting me put you on the spot. Um, this intermingling of birth and death. Um, the bloody manger, as it were. I know it's gross, but um, uh, it's there. This intermingling of birth and death, of vulnerability, of weakness and majesty. Um, and Cramner gets it. Lord, who makest us glad, who turns us. There's no, it's pure passivity, a word I probably use every week. Pure passivity as we are turned to him. Oh God, who makest us glad with the yearly remembrance of the birth of thine only Son, Jesus Christ. Grant. So now as we are turned, we also are put into the position of petitioner. Grant that as we joyfully receive him as our Redeemer, the one who comes for us, not yet with us, he's for us first, as we receive him for our Redeemer, so we may with sure confidence behold him when he shall come to be our judge. That as we know him for us, then then we recognize that he is with us, God Emmanuel, God with us. Um, so Cramner begins it all, and then we move to, uh, to Luke. 
where he speaks of the birth of Jesus Christ. This is the Linus passage, you know, from a um, from the Peanuts. This is where where he speaks. And while they were there, the time came, um, the time, the fullness of time, recurrent phrase of Paul and other parts of the scriptures, where now God says, as it were, now. Of course, he lives in the now. He doesn't live in the then or the not yet. He lives always in the present. And so he speaks into the now, and now he enters into his now. He who is outside of time lowers himself in um, in a punctilious, I think that's a word, enters into the now. And so, while they were there, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same regions there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, gospel, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day, so there's the eternal now, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. So here's the vulnerability, the out. Uh, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, so the angels recede and they go back to where they came, from which they came. And when the angels went away from them into heaven and the shepherds said to one another, understatement of the year, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. So there's the text um, that sort of undergirds a lot of, of where we are today. And then we hear John Wesley, um, the great evangelical, uh, uh, the brother of John, um, Charles was the the hymn writer, some 10,000 hymns that Charles Wesley produced. 10,000 hymns. Imagine that kind of output. I mean, it rivals, you know, Bach, um, uh, uh, Shakespeare, some of the others have had this prodigious output. Uh, and he's the one who wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Going back to the text from Luke 2, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, mild, he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. There's so many, such a richness to the words here, um, evoking the first chapter of John, where John speaks, uh, let me just turn to it rather than try to remember, um, that uh, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, veiled in flesh. And so here came Jesus, incarnation, incarnate. Um, God was made meat, it was told to me once in a very evocative phrase, one that sort of found its way to think of the word carne in the Latin or the Italian or the Spanish or any of those languages, that God was made meat, made flesh, made bone and hair and sinew, and that God came and lowered himself and clothed himself in flesh as a veil. 
to veil his incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. See, hail the incarnate deity. The angels alone can see him. For when Jesus comes, veiled in flesh into the low estate, the mean estate of the manger, the throwaway uh, dirty stall of cows or donkeys or pigs or whatever it was, uh, pleased he was on earth as man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us, mild he lays, Philippians 2, do not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but laid it aside, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. And so Martin Luther, of course my hero, picks this up in one of his, he wrote, um, uh, as he was a preacher before he was anything else. He preached um, not just every Sunday, but several times a week for years. Uh, and so we have all of those sermons. And one of his Christmas sermons, I'll read from a couple of them, has this. I never thought of this. Um, I've read this before, but I didn't read it uh, uh, really until, until earlier this week when I considered the response of the angels. Remember, they receded back into heaven. They went back from where they came. Where it was, and suddenly there was with the one angel, the herald angel, uh, the angel Gabriel. Uh, there was with Gabriel, the herald angel, a multitude of the heavenly host. And Luther elaborates on that here. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, an innumerable multitude. There were more angels in there are more angels in heaven than blades of grass in all the gardens of the whole world. I really thought about that. So many men have never lived on earth as there are angels in heaven. You would think that some of these angels might have gone to the baby Jesus to take him a golden cradle or a feather bed or some warm water. And why didn't they? They were singing that he is the Lord and Savior. Why then did they not go to lend him a hand? That is something we cannot understand. We shall simply have to believe it until we find out at the resurrection. And they were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And this is the real punch for me. See what God did in heaven about this birth, which the world despised and, he did, and did not even see and know. The joy was so great that the angels could not stay in heaven, but had to break out and tell man on earth. The angels proclaimed to the shepherds tidings of great joy. This is a mighty comfort to us. What the world despised, the angels honored. They would have had a much bigger celebration if God had allowed them, but he wished to teach us through his Son to despise the pomp of the world. All the angels in heaven, not one excepted, sang, Glory to God in the highest. What a shame that all men should not preach this word when all the angels in heaven play on organs and pipes in eternity. The angels had no bigger congregation than two shepherds in a field. And they were filled with too great joy for words. And we who hear this message, behold, I bring you good tidings. Never feel one spark of joy. Here's where he really sets up, I think, masterfully and penetratingly, at least to me, the, uh, the two worlds. The world that we don't see, the world of the angels, the world of, 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 of truth, in the way of things of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, and how everyone recognized immediately that this is the coming of God into both spheres of existence. And they couldn't not come out. And they broke through spontaneously and in univocal voice 
singing glory to God in the highest. But on this world, this dark planet, as C.S. Lewis would call it, we could see him not. I'm thinking of Jim Palmer's fantastic class that he was here on Flannery O'Connor, The Four Weeks. If you haven't heard that, it's online and it's excellent. Flannery's great phrase, to the deaf, you have to shout. And to those who are hard of, who cannot see, you have to write in all capital letters. And so here, we who are deaf and we who are blind, but who are regaining our sight and our ears, I think Luther speaks. Behold, I bring you good tidings, but we who hear this message never feel one spark of joy. I hate myself because when I see him laid in the manger, in the lap of his mother, and hear the angels sing, my heart, my heart does not leap into flame. With what good reason should we all despise ourselves when we remain so cold, when this word is spoken to us, over which all men should dance and leap and burn for joy? We act as though it were a frigid historical fact that does not quite smite our hearts, as if someone were merely relating that uh, the sultan has a crown of gold. That was written 500 years ago, and I think it still speaks with such power, to me at least, of, uh, of my own condition, my deafness, my blindness, my inability to recognize what the angels see in a moment and cannot not respond to. They break forth from the heavens and sing, glory to God in the highest. And maybe once a year, my heart is somewhat strangely warmed, but it's coming. Grace, you know, God with us, coming to redeem me from that very condition of stoniness, of unmovability, of, uh, of coldness, an unfeeling coldness, an inability to recognize what actually is as I, uh, as I maintain my own fascination with my navel. <laughs> Um, that's Christmas. So Garrison Keillor, of all places, then sort of cues up for me next where he speaks. And this is a little bit funny. And I tried to find this where we'd hear him, but I couldn't. So I'm not going to try to imitate Garrison Keillor. I wish I could. But he begins to consider, um, I, he doesn't, but I'm going to make him uh, consider that phrase, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, of course, that's true. It is true. Um, but, you know, a little homiletic device here. I'm going to say that's, that's, of course, not true at all. Jesus is not the reason for the season. Who's the reason for the season? I am. <laughs> I'm a narcissist. No, I'm just kidding. I'm the reason for the season, and so are you. Because why did Jesus come? He didn't come for his own kicks. He came as our Redeemer. He came for us. Christmas wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the original sin, if it weren't for the problem of being human, where each one of us have the even distribution of evil, the even distribution of an inability to see and hear the way things actually are. You're the reason for Christmas. I'm the reason for Christmas. And we forget that so quickly. Like a man who forgets what he looks like as soon as he walks away from a mirror, that's us. We forget that I'm the reason that Christ had to come into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief. So Garrison Keillor helps me get there because he speaks of, uh, uh, and, and <laughs> here's the, uh, that, that blanket forgiveness, which is really you know, just a weak attempt. It's not really forgiveness at all. Um, he's going to pick on those who write Christmas letters. So I, I ask you forgiveness and forbearance if you write a nice Christmas letter with your Christmas card. Um, that describes so-and-so. Timmy did this, and Johnny did that, and all that sort of thing, because he, he comes in with this. He comes to us with this. 
I love reading Christmas newsletters in which the writer bursts forth the bonds of modesty and comes forth with one <laughs> gilt-edged paragraph after another. Tara was the top scorer on the Lady Cougars soccer team and won the lead role in the college production of Antigone, which, by the way, they're performing in the original Greek. Her essay on chaos theory as an investment strategy will soon be in the next issue, will be in the next issue of Fortune magazine, the same week that she'll appear as a model in vogue. How does she, uh, how she does what she does and still make Phi Beta Kappa is a wonderment to us all. And yes, she is still volunteering at the homeless shelter. I get a couple dozen of Christmas letters each year and I sit and read them in my old bathrobe as I chow down on Hostess Twinkies. Everyone in the letters is busy as beavers, piling up honors hand over fist, volunteering up a storm, traveling to Beijing, Abu Dhabi, and Antarctica. Nobody's in treatment or depressed or flunking out of school, though occasionally there is a child who gets the shorter shrift. Chad is adjusting well to his new school and making friends. <laughs> he especially enjoys the handicrafts. How sad for Chad. There he is in reform school, learning to get along with the other little felons and making belts and birdhouses, but he can't possibly measure up to the goddess Tara, or Lindsay, or Megan, or Madison, each of whom is also stupendous. This is rough on those of us whose children are not paragons. Most children aren't. A great many teenage children go through periods when they loathe you and go around slamming doors and playing psychotic music and saying things like, I wish I had never been born which is a red-hot needle stuck under your fingernail. One must be very selective writing about them for the annual newsletter. Sean is becoming very much his own person and is unafraid to express himself. He is a lively presence in our family, and his love of music is a thing to behold. I come from Minnesota, where it's considered shameful to be shameless, where modesty is always in fashion, where self-promotion is looked at askance. Give us a gold trophy, we will have it bronzed, so you won't think we were special. There are no Donald Trumps in Minnesota. We strangled them all in their cribs. A football player who likes to do a special dance after scoring a touchdown is something of a freak. The basis of modesty is winter. When it's 10 below zero and the wind is whipping, there is no such thing as stylish and smart. Everybody's nose runs, and the irony is, if you're smart and stylish, nobody will tell you about your nose. So why do I bring that up? A little bit of a break, but, but he's on, of course. So what about the rest of us? We don't have the paragons, the models of, of virtue and of wonderment, of, uh, of the ability to have it all together and to look like you have it all together, too. Um, what about the rest of us? Well, it's, those, it's for those that Christmas is. Christmas is for sinners. Christmas is for those who need it. Um, Christmas, as the, apostle, as, a, as the prophet Isaiah said, is calling a spade a spade. Isaiah 9 speaks, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the deep darkness, on them has light shone. For unto us a child is born. To us, those who walk in darkness, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, of peace. So what's the clear place? Christmas is for sinners. Christmas is for those who recognize that I am the reason for the season, not you. Because if, if, uh, if Christmas is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, that those who walk in darkness have seen a great light, and it's outside of you, 
then it's a welfare program. It's like, I'm so glad God is doing something for all those poor people. I'm so glad God is coming to help all those other people because they really need it. Christmas is for sinners. Christmas is for those who are caught either on their own devices or the devices of others in that place of, of need. For those who recognize as they walk in darkness, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, unto us hope dawns, unto us the one whose name is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty Father, Everlasting God, Prince of Peace, unto us that son is given, not for the others, for those people, for those people. It's that welfare program. Christmas is for those who need it. For those of us, for those, for those like me who are dead rebels um, and who need a miracle. I love W.H. Auden's little poem. I don't know anything about W.H. Auden, but I like this excerpt. It's a really long poem. Here's just five lines. We, I say this every year, I think, but we who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal, you know, at the right time? How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. That's the only thing that will save us. Christmas is for those who need, not would be helped by, but who need a miracle, who are off the end of their rope. So again, Luther, um, speaking to this way, this is where he's really at his best, this uh, uh, God working against the opposite, God working where he seems most absent, God present in the darkness as the light, uh, though we who are blind do not yet recognize. God allows the godly to be powerless and depressed so that everyone thinks they are done for. Yet even in that very moment, God is most powerfully present. Though hidden and concealed, when the power of man fails, the power of God begins. Even so was Christ powerless on the cross, and yet he was most mighty there on the cross. Even though even there, when he was most powerless, yet there he was most mighty, and he overcame sin Death, world, hell, devil, and all will. You have got to feel the pinch of hunger in the midst of scarcity and experience what hunger and scarcity are when you don't know where to turn to yourself or to anyone else but only to God that the work may be God's alone and of none other. You must not only think and speak of lowliness but come into it, sink in it, utterly helpless that God alone may save you. Or, at any rate, should it not happen, you should at least desire it and not shrink. For this reason, we are Christians and have the gospel that we may that we may fall into distress and loneliness and that God thereby may have his work in us. Comments? I'm going to keep going. I'm going to move towards Truman Capote and it'll be probably close to the end. Um, we who must die demand a miracle. This Christmas is for sinners, for those of us who know the brokenness of the world, its loneliness, its aches, its accumulated ache, its longings, its imperfections, its emptiness, for those of us who have walked in darkness. And not only those of us who have walked again in darkness by our own hand. This isn't those just, although it's, it's, it's many of us, it's all of us who have in mind, maybe even now, 
some very definitive or deliberate act or or several acts that we feel tremendous shame and disconnection that keeps us in that dark. It's for that, yes, but it's also for those of us who just have that accumulated ache of the years, that just from living, from holding our hearts out, from being uh, caught up when a good friend of ours is uh, reminds us of the fragility of life when she was walking across the street and just... In a moment, things change. Uh, for those of us who have that sort of tenuous place, Christmas. Christmas. God coming. Emmanuel. Um, Truman Capote, and I don't know how this is going to come off because I was reading this, and I've read this several times over the last several years. Great little story, um, Truman Capote. Contemporary with... Uh, Harper Lee, I think, I'm way out of my league here, some of y'all would know this, there's some scuttle that maybe she was actually, he was actually the shadow author uh, of, uh, of To Kill a Mockingbird or something, but, but Gretchen says no, so I take that, you know, but they, they knew, he's from, you know, southern Alabama and all that, so it's wonderfully evocative for those of us who, who you know, for those of y'all who grew up here, I grew up in a uh, small town outside of Houston, so it's still that, that, uh, mostly rural. He's just, he's got a great wordsmith. And this year when I read it, I was reading it in my office yesterday while Margaret was practicing the fifth grade pageant. And I knew I was kind of at a place of fragility, but I was just weeping when I was reading it. So I don't know how this is going to come across. You know, that's my little preface. I'm going to try to hold it together. But, you know, it's what art does. It's what literature does. When there's something about it, it's not a Christian per se, but it evokes that accumulated ache. It's just a way that it speaks that pulls forth Christmas, the freedom of God, because he is going to allude to that, the freedom of God to come, to not leave us in darkness, but to come for those of us who walk in darkness uh, and to give us sight to see the great light, to behold his glory, the glory of the one and only. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus Christ, the one and only. He has made God known by making himself flesh and dwelling among us. Um, so Truman Capote has this great way of uh, describing that. Some of it's just going to be, you know, sort of that nostalgia, that ache for home, that ache for what once was. Maybe you never even had it, but you still wish you had it. You know, that sort of ache, because he's going to talk about Christmas morning. But then he's going to enter into what I think is, his, is uh, his symbolism, where it speaks of kites and wind. The wind of God, the breath of God, the pneuma of God. He surely had something like that in mind, whether or not in a specifically Christian perspective or not. Just the, uh, the unbridled nature of the wind. The freedom that the wind offers and the kites that fly upon the wind. Uh, uh, Truman Capote, it's autobiographical. He's Buddy. That's the name that he's given by a distant cousin. He's about seven, and his best friend he sent to live in rural Alabama, lower Alabama, with a, a bunch of distant cousins, all of whom are very old because of the circumstances of his own family. And his best friend is like a fourth cousin twice removed who's a 60-something-year-old lady named Miss Sook, uh, who uh, I think because of a childhood illness always was very childish herself and never fit in with the adults. Um, and so they are best friends and inseparable um, and there's a lot of ache, a uh, very poignant ache that he describes here. Do y'all know this story? A lot of y'all do, of course. 
So this is the uh, the end of of, uh, of a Christmas memory. So sit back. I'll try to read this. Maybe you can hear it. I know it's hard to hear sometimes. The candle. This is Christmas Eve in the middle of the night when the seven-year-old buddy and the sixty-something-year-old uh, Mrs. Sook, Miss Sook, are uh, are both too excited to sleep, and so they're in their room together, uh, excited. The candle burns too short to hold. Out it goes, exposing the starlight. The stars spinning at the window like a visible caroling that slowly, slowly daybreak silences. Possibly we doze, but the beginnings of dawn splash us like cold water. We're up, wide-eyed and wandering, while we wait for others to waken. Quite deliberately, my friend drops a kettle on the kitchen floor. I tap dance in front of closed doors. One by one, the household emerges, looking as though they'd like to kill us both. But it's Christmas, so they can't. <laughs> First, a gorgeous breakfast. Just about everything you can imagine, from flapjacks and fried squirrel to hominy grits and honey in the comb, which puts everyone in good humor except my friend and I. Frankly, we're both so impatient to get at the presents that we can't eat a mouthful. Well, I'm disappointed. Who wouldn't be? With socks, a Sunday school hat, some handkerchiefs, a hand-me-down sweater, and a year's subscription to the religious magazine for children, The Little Shepherd. It makes me boil. It really does. My friend is a better haul, a sack of Santsumas. That's her best present. She is proudest, however, of a white wool shawl knitted by her married sister. But she says her favorite gift is the kite. The kite that I built for her. And it is very beautiful, though not as beautiful as the one that she made me which is blue and scattered with gold and green, good conduct stars. Moreover, my name is painted on it. Buddy. Buddy. The wind is blowing. The wind is blowing. Nothing will do till we've run to a pasture below the house where Queenie, that's the dog, where Queenie is scooted to bury her bone and where, a winter hence, Queenie will be buried too. That's just the words. He just kind of puts that in there and it pulls death right to the, right to the front. Where Queenie is scooted to bury her bone, and where, a winter hence, Queenie will be buried too. There, plunging through a healthy, waist-high grass, we unreel our kites, feel them twitching at the string like sky fish as they swim into the wind, satisfied, sun-warmed. We sprawl in the grass and peel satsumas which watch and watch our kites cavort. Soon I forget the socks and the hand-me-down sweater. I'm as happy as if we'd already won the $50,000 grand prize of the coffee naming contest. Christmas has come at the right time, the eternal now. It's happening for Buddy. My, how foolish I am, my friend cries, suddenly alert, like a woman remembering too late that she has biscuits in the oven. You know what I've always thought, she asks in a tone of discovery, not smiling at me, but at a point beyond. I've always thought a body would have to be sick and dying before they saw the Lord, and I imagined that when he came, It'd be like looking at the Baptist window, pretty as colored glass with the sun pouring through. Such a shrine, you don't know it's getting dark. And it's been a comfort to think of that shrine, think of that shine taking away all the spooky feeling. But I'll wager it never happens. I'll wager at the very end, a body realizes the Lord has already shown himself that things as they are. Her hand circles in a gesture that gathers the clouds and kites and grass and Queenie pawing earth over her bone, just as they've always seen, was seeing him. As for me, I could leave the world 
with today in my eyes. And then note section. This is our last Christmas together. Life separates us. Those who know best decide that I belong in a military school. And so follows a miserable succession of bugle-blowing prisons, grim, reveille-ridden summer camps. I have a new home, too, but it doesn't count. Home is where my friend is, and there I never go. And there she remains, puttering around the kitchen, alone with Queenie, then alone. Buddy, dear, she writes in her wild, hard-to-read script, Yesterday, Jim Macy's horse kicked Queenie bad. Be thankful she didn't feel much. I wrapped her in a, flying, a fine linen sheet and rode her in a buggy down to Simpson's pasture where she can be with all of her bones. For a few Novembers, she continues to bake her fruitcakes single-handed. Not as many, but some. And of course, she always sends me the best of the batch. Also, in every letter, she encloses a dime wadded in toilet paper. See a picture show and write me the story. But gradually, in her letters, she tends to confuse me with her older friend, her other friend, the buddy who died in the 1880s. More and more thirteenths are not the only days that she stays in bed. A morning arrives in November, a leafless, birdless coming of winter morning, when she cannot rouse herself to exclaim, Oh my, it's fruitcake weather. And when that happens, I know it, a message saying so merely confirms a piece of news some secret vein has already received, severing from me an irreplaceable part of myself, letting it loose like a kite on a broken string. That is why, walking across a school campus on this particular December morning, I keep searching the sky, as if I expected to see, rather like hearts, a pair of lost kites hurrying toward heaven. I find it a beautiful, evocative remembrance. Take this, in remembrance of me, that Christ died for you after he came to you. Emmanuel, he died for you as your Savior and as your Redeemer. This is a theme that E.B. White, you know, the Charlotte's Web guy, also the Strunken White guy, for those of us who, who read that in college, the miracle of Christmas is that like the distant and very musical voice of the hound, it penetrates finally. It becomes heard in the heart. So all these soundings are to come to that place, as Robert Smith would say, to speak cardiologically, to find that place in the heart, uh, that stony heart, that place, the unevangelized continent that needs Christmas, <laughs> that needs to know that you who walk in darkness, to you a light has come. Um, what child is this? Good Christians fear, for sinners hear, the silent word is pleading. And then from a little town of Bethlehem, written by the Anglican, Phillips Brooks. Yet in thy, Bethlehem, personifying the city, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years. Think, buddy. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born to us. 
this day. I say all that just as we will sing those on uh, what Wednesday, for Christmas Eve, Wednesday, or even Thursday if you come to church. Uh, so remember, Christmas is for sinners. You're the reason. No, really, I'm the reason for the season because it's not a welfare program. I'm not glad that he's come to you people. <laughs> I'm glad he's come for me. <laughs> and so the, to a conclusion, sort of a, an unusual Christmas text, if we, uh, if we need to hear, uh, is it air supply? No, it's a journey. I want to know what love is. Foreigner. Foreigner. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, I want to know what love is. We do not know what love is until God shows us. Think about that. We do not know what love is until God shows us, until God, who is love, became flesh and dwelt among us. And so an unusual place. This isn't usually a Christian, I mean, a Christmas text. Paul's letter to the Colossians um, speaks in very theological terms, but also, I think, when our hearts are prepared to hear it in a way that immediately speaks gospel speaks good news because it declares that which is, not what might be, what once was, what will be, what is. And that's this. Christ, he, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So I'm going to close. Um, Frank Limehouse, um, good friend to many of us, uh, told this story once. I'm sure it was in a sermon. On a Christmas morning, he was called to the hospital because a parishioner was uh, had had a heart attack. Um, not an active parishioner, but one... Who, uh, who he certainly knew, a man, not an old man, uh, one taken too early, uh, but he knew some of the family dynamics which were difficult. Some of the adult children who weren't very active, certainly in that church or any church, um, a lot of, of, uh, of, uh, of brokenness in the family. In other words, <laughs> people that need Christmas, <laughs> those that walk in darkness, uh, those of us who know our own brokenness, our broken relationships, our inability to do anything about it, our reticence to do anything about it. We know that it's a problem. I know how to have that conversation, but you know, all of that, all of that it came to a head one Christmas morning as Frank gets the call at 6 a.m. or so and goes to the hospital for a Christmas morning. And there, um, as they're around the dying father, one of the adult children, I think it was one of his daughters, sort of jadedly and snidely said, Well, Pastor, some of y'all know this story. Pastor, why don't you offer us a word that will give us a little bit of comfort? And she was being, you know, it wasn't a, an honest plea. It was a little bit of a, it was a jab. You know, oh, I'm glad you're here. 
You know, what are you going to do now, Pastor? Christmas morning, and my dad's about dead. Do something, can you? Let me see your voodoo. And Frank, somewhat, as he would say, atypically, uh, very humbly, in other words, <laughs> that was for you, Frank, if you're listening. Frank's response, um, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's the word. That's the only word. That's the only word of Christmas. For those of us who walk in darkness, for those of us who are living amidst brokenness, of broken relationships, of families that won't come together, of pain, of hospitals, of the accumulated ache of the years, of the loss of, of, of innocence or of loved ones or of childhood, or uh, those of us who, 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 who just can try to phone it in on a good day and get through it so that it happens maybe later. For those of us, unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Love comes down at Christmas. Thanks be God. So let me close with uh, Cramner's second collect. Let us pray, Almighty God, which has given us thine only begotten Son, to take our nature upon him, and as at this time to be born of a pure virgin, grant that we, being regenerate and made thy children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by thy Holy Spirit, through the same Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.